All right, keep that Bible open there. And as we jump into this, as I mentioned, there, there are several things that we say like over and over again here at the journey. And the, the primary one, and printed on the bulletins, is that we are, the journey's a place for flawed, imperfect people, right? That we've not gathered here because we've got it all together, but rather because we desperately need Jesus. And the reason we kind of major on that is, is because I think oftentimes in church culture, we don't do a good job of, of making space for the struggle of life. Like, we, we don't do a good job at just like talking about and owning and wrestling through the hard times of life and, and the times of discouragement and struggle. And, and so what we do a lot of times is we preach grace, right? We preach salvation by grace through faith, but then we kind of shift right back into the law whenever we start talking about, uh, well, okay, you're saved by grace, but then now that you're saved, just kind of live a good life and, you know, we'll see you in heaven and like just keep coming to church and bring your friends. But we don't spend a lot of time talking through what, like, what the gospel offers for us for the in-between. Like we talk about the fact that we're justified. Like in a moment, when you pray that prayer and you truly receive Jesus as your Savior, you turn from your sins and trust in him. Like you are saved and you are justified and, and you, uh, like he will never let you go in that moment. And you can be promised that from that time that you will one day be glorified. Like when you, you will one day uh, be fully made new and saved from the presence of sin when either Jesus comes back or whenever you go and, uh, and meet him in your, in your own death. And so, but we don't talk about the, the struggle in between, right? The, the, the struggle of sanctification. And, and it's interesting because Jesus calls us to a life of suffering, doesn't he? Doesn't he bid us to come, like to, to take up our cross to follow him? Doesn't he tell us repeatedly that in this world we'll have trouble, right? But to take heart because he's over. Like, so Jesus, it's not a bait and switch because Jesus called us to a life of suffering and of struggle. But man, I think the church has tried to kind of make the gospel in a little more, you know, accessible and appealing package by, by, not, by not dealing with that sometimes. And what happens in that culture when we kind of major on the, the smiles and the prosperity gospel and that kind of thing, then we're shocked when tragedy happens. Right? Then we're, we're just amazed and appalled and, and we don't know what to do with the reality and the realization that someone's struggling. We don't, do, we don't know what to do with a confession from somebody who's been in church for years and, and they finally come forward and say that they've been an addict, that they've been struggling with alcoholism. Or we don't know what to do when the marriage ends. Or worse, when we find out someone's taken their own life. And then the suicide note reveals that they have struggled for years in silence. Like when we don't make space for the struggle in the church, then we... We don't make space for hope and healing to get into those dark places. And yet the reality is many of you can, can relate to many of the things I just listed off and others that, that uh, I, I hear very often, man, nobody, I've, I've not told anybody this. Or uh, you're one of few people to know. Or, or I've kept this a secret for years because in the church we don't. And so that's why we kind of major on that message of like, we're flawed and perfect. Like, we just don't want fake smiles here. We want people to, be, like, it's okay to not be okay. Like, we don't want you to stay there, 
We don't want that to ever turn into this just embracing of, man, I'm just a sinner. I'll do what I want. My church says it's okay to be flawed and imperfect, and so I'm not even trying. That's not the point. The point is that we don't pretend that we're already there, but rather we keep coming to Jesus in repentance. And we, we, we actually, as we grow closer to Jesus, we grow closer to the ground in humility as we realize increasingly how much of a sinner we are. And so the, more, the longer we walk with Jesus, the more humble we should get, not the more prideful. And so we just want to push against that and as a church. But the good news is that while churches have not done a great job at making space for that, acknowledging that type of struggle in life, uh, that is not true of the Bible. In fact, the Bible is, is pretty full of stories of really some of God's most famous men and women and his leaders that struggle, often to the point of wishing their life would end. Again, in the church, we don't always have categories for somebody that's confessing that, that they're depressed or that they have contemplated suicide. And so we'll, we'll accuse them of, of maybe some secret sin or we'll, we'll say they, you know, well, they need to know the gospel or they're not truly. But like the truth is the Bible acknowledges this type of struggle and, and many of God's people have been exactly in those places of depression, of discouragement, and of despair to the point that they wish their life was over. And so one such story is the one that uh, Kim just read for us here in First Kings. And, and so as we continue our series uh, called The Questioning God, um, we're going to be looking at this story and specifically God's response to the prophet Elijah's really dark place, this kind of dark night of the soul, as many theologians would call that place in our life. And so um, keep your Bibles open. We're going to walk through this text together. And what we see from the very beginning is we need some context because our, uh, our passage starts in, in 1 Kings 19 and verse 1 says, Ahab told Jezebel, uh, some fun names, and Kim, you did great with them, um, but Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And so we need to kind of pause right there and go, okay, well, what did Elijah do, right? Like we can't very well continuing this story if we don't know what Elijah has done. And so many of you probably heard this story um, that, that happened previously in 1 Kings 18, this famous story of the showdown of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But really, it's important to kind of zoom out even a little bit further because a lot has happened in 1 Kings uh, 1 through 18. And so we know from uh, really rewinding all the way back to Genesis 12 that God set out to rescue, um, to really on a rescue mission to gain back his people. And the way that he was going to do that was by making for himself a people, a nation of people called Israel. And so he, he does that through um, giving a promised son to an old barren couple. And, um, and from there, uh, making this people. And then those people end up in Egypt and they multiply greatly. And then they end up in slavery to Egypt. And then God miraculously rescues them out of slavery, right? Which is what the book of Exodus is about. And we know many of those stories. And God does a mighty work to get his people out of that bondage and out of slavery and into the promised land, right? To make them into a great nation that inherited the land of milk and honey where they would be prosperous, where they would get to dwell and enjoy the blessing of God. And God said, listen, you're going to be my people and I will be your God. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this nation of people. And so that's what God has, has set in, in, in motion to do. And, and the, the story leading up to this has, has, has been action-packed and full of ups and downs. But finally, King David comes and is able to kind of push them over the edge and, and finally conquer um, the, the rest of the promised land and establish a kingdom, right? And so it's good. And King David is, is um, man, he, he's this 
pivotal figure and is the one that God makes a, a covenant with and says, um, I'm, I'm going to, like, your throne will never end. Like, the line of your throne, I'm going to send one that will come through your, your heritage and will create a throne and a kingdom that will never ever end. And so David establishes the kingdom, and then Solomon, his son, leads them into really a, a season of greatness, right? And um, I mean, it's incredible, and, and really some of those nations start taking notice of Solomon and the, the kingdom of Israel, and they start noticing what God has, has blessed them with until Solomon himself kind of gets off the rails. Not kind of, he very much gets off the rails, and his heart is turned away, and he begins to allow pagan idol worship that's worshiping other gods uh, into the mix. And then what we see is that really his story ends with a kingdom that is no longer postured in a, in a place of worship and dependence upon God, but instead it's a, it's a kingdom with a king that is, is very much uh, depending upon the king and his strength and the kingdom's resources to get to get by and to really have their pride in that, and that leads to their hearts being turned away. And so then what you have there in um, kind of some of the chapters right before this in, in First King is just the story of the, the kingdom becomes fractured. you got north and south, and then there's just king after king after king that comes through and, and kind of continues to make a mess of things, and the kingdom falls further and further into disarray until you get to this guy named Ahab. And this guy, uh, the Bible says, does more evil to anger the Lord than anybody else up to this point. Like he continues in the ways of his father, but he takes it to another level. And then, to top it all off, he marries himself a, a true witch of a woman named Jezebel. And she is a pagan princess, and she comes in, and um, man, like not only is she just kind of terrible, but she's terrible in a real special way where not only is she a worshiper of another God, and so she's bringing the, that worship of Baal into the kingdom, but she also makes it her personal mission. You know how every first lady kind of has their thing that they, you know, uh, Michelle Obama did the health stuff, right? The, the healthy food for kids and that kind of thing. And Melania's doing the bullying. And so each first lady kind of has that thing. Her, Jezebel's was just to kill everybody that worship. God, especially the prophets. Any prophets of Yahweh, like she wanted them dead. And she was, like she was an ambitious gal. Like she got it done. Like she said, want them killed, and she made things happen. And so we see that she has a particular spirit about her, and, it, and she puts it to action. And so that's kind of where things have come about, and, and the kingdom is very much infiltrated with this worship of Baal. And Baal is this god that is supposed to be the god of rain and fertility. And if you think about it, in this agricultural, like, culture that they live in, like it's really, really important that they have rain, right? If they're going to continue flourishing in this land of milk and honey, like they need rain to produce their crops, to feed their livestock, to have the kind of life that God has promised them, right? And so when, when this kind of uh, idol worship seeps in and, and these other, the Canaanite people are telling them like, hey, this, is th this God is the God that takes care of, of rain and fertility. And so it, it kind of is a tempting supplement for some of the Israelites to kind of say, okay, I'm going to worship Yahweh, but I'll slip in some of this Baal worship. And then others completely turn their hearts from God and to this idol worship completely. And we see that Ahab has uh, built altars and built temples for Baal and has completely kind of made this an official shift into worship. And, all, and the people of Israel have, have joined them and gone there. And so this is where we pick up the story. And this is where Elijah is called into ministry. And we see that God calls him out and says, and sends him to speak. So a prophet in that day is like somebody that God speak, God um, calls to speak on his behalf. 
So God has these prophets. He says, okay, go tell my people this on my behalf. So they're, they're not fortune tellers or some weird thing. Like there are people that, are, that God is going to share his word with and say, okay, now go proclaim that to the people. And so um, God is going to, and, and even this, even the fact that God doesn't walk away from his people, we need to be rejoicing in that, that small truth, that his people turn away from him, spit in his face after all that he has done. They, what the Bible would say, whore themselves out after other gods, and God doesn't walk away from them. He keeps pursuing them. He comes toward them. Like he could just wash his hands of the whole thing and walk away, but he's made a covenant with these people, and he's going to hold up his end of the deal. And so what we see is that God says, okay, Elijah, we're going to go after this whole Baal thing. My people have turned their hearts toward him, they, they, or to this God. They think that this is uh, a truly a God, so we're going to come after it. And so Baal's at, like, supposed to be responsible for rain and fertility. We're going to go right after the heart of this deal. We're going to pr- prove that Baal is no more a God than the, the bulls that these other people had kind of, and the, the golden calves that they'd put in place. Like he has no power um, whatsoever. They're going to really just expose the impotency of this God. Baal. And so what God calls Elijah to do is go, hey, proclaim, tell him there will be no rain for three years. We're going to bring a drought on this deal, which again has meaning because Baal's supposed to be the one that covers rain, right? It takes care of that deal. So God's going to say, hey, Baal ain't got nothing to do with it. When I say it, it's going to happen. If I say no rain, no rain. And so for three years, Elijah makes this claim. And for three years, there is indeed no rain. And then it gets to the end of the three years and God comes to Elijah again and says, okay, we're going to, like, we're going to close this deal. Right? And I want you to gather up, I want you to go to Ahab and say, let's have a showdown. Let's, let's, let's have this thing out. Let's prove once and for all who's really God, Baal or Yahweh. And so they have this incredible um, kind of showdown on Mount Carmel that you can read about in the previous chapter, 1 Kings 18. And, and so there's 450 prophets of Baal and other people to gather around, and it's really like the whole nation against just Elijah. And they do this whole thing, and they put bulls on the altar, and they smoke, like, and they call down and say, okay, whoever calls to their God and whoever, whosoever God responds with fire and consumes the offering, that's the true God. And so Elijah lets them go first. You should read this story because Elijah is, is funny. Elijah lets them go first, and they're like, they're calling on their God. They're walking all around, and they're cutting themselves. And he's like, hey, maybe you should just talk a little louder. I don't think he can hear you. Or, hey, maybe he went to the bathroom. Maybe just give him a minute, right? You know what? He's probably asleep. Like, you caught him on the wrong shift. Like, just wait till he wakes up. Like, Elijah is mocking them, and, and they, they go on for hours, and nothing happens. And then Elijah gets ready for his, and he doesn't just have a regular offering. He says, hey, dump water on this thing. And they're going to just drench it. In a, in a day of drought, like, that's crazy, first of all, to use all the water, but they just drench the offering. Not only is this a big, massive bull cut into pieces on this altar of wood to be burned, but now he's going to pour a bunch of water on it. And if you've tried to start a uh, fire with wet wood, like you know the difficulty of that. So it's so much so that it's drenched, and there's a trench around it, and water's just everywhere. And then Elijah calls on God. God shows up in a powerful way, sends, heaven, or sends fire from heaven, and consumes the whole thing, licks every bit of it dry. And it's this incredible moment of victory. And then Elijah goes and pursues all the prophets of Baal, has them put to death. And it's this incredible, incredible victory. And Ahab is there, and, and then... Elijah looks at Ahab and says, okay, hey, you better get headed back to your city because if not, you're going to get caught in a, a rainstorm. Again, hasn't rained in three years. Elijah says, that's coming. So they watch and they wait, and sure enough, storm, small cloud blows in, and then the whole heavens get dark, and it comes this incredible storm. So there's a rejoicing, and Elijah heads back into town with Ahab. And so that's kind of where we pick up our story, and that's what then Ahab is going to go back and tell his crazy wife. Jezebel, right? So that's, that's the story. 
You could kind of imagine that dynamic if you've seen couples like that. Where Anyway, but anyway, she tells the story. And, and you get the impression that Ahab's kind of like, whoa, like, this Elijah dude's legit. Clearly his God has got like, but he gets there and tells his wife, and she has a different response. We see in verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. So she doesn't back down. She's thoroughly unimpressed. And in fact, she says, hey, I heard you killed all, all the prophets of our God, and I'm going to come and get you. And if, if I haven't like handled that, and if you've not joined them in their grave by this time tomorrow, then may God do the same to me. And so he, she responds with an incredible threat. And you've got to know that she's, there's some weight to that, right? Like she's, she's uh, reading previous chapters, like she's killed lots and lots of prophets. And so what we see is Elijah goes from this incredible high. It says, after that whole deal and God sends rain, Elijah, like the spirit of God is on him and he runs out in front of the king's chariot as they go back to Jezreel. And, and, and I think Elijah thinks the battle with the Baal is over. Right? I think he expects, man, revival's going to happen. Like this, this has been proved once and for all. And so he goes back to the city. He'd been in hiding for years. Like Ahab and Jezebel had been looking for him for years. And, and, and so he goes to the city where they are. Thing and then it's over. And then he receives this death threat. And he Im- immediately goes into what? Fear and despair. It's a curious turn of events. So to, from just watching what had just happened on Mount Carmel to seeing God show up in such a mighty way. And now all of a sudden he's overcome with fear and he's tucking his tail and running. It's, and it's one hand to kind of, it's easy to kind of judge that and go, man, what are you doing? Elijah, like bipolar dude, like God just showed up for you. Like, why are you worried about that guy? Like, but I think if we pause and, and relate for a minute, I think we can all probably be honest and go, yeah, like there's times whenever it, d- it just takes one thing, right? Anybody else, it just takes one thing and, and you immediately shift into despair and depression and woe is me, right? Is it anybody else? Like it can be a great day at church and then I can just get one phone call and, and, and it's not even a big deal, right? And then my joy is just gone. What, what does that look like for you? What is that, what is that one thing that, man, when that gets brought up or when that, we, we're reminded of that or when we think we've conquered that and it raises its head back up, it just, it just steals your joy and you just shift into despair. That is where we find Elijah here and he takes off running. Um, and we really see, as we read in verse 4 all the way down, like, he, he, he heads all the way to the other end of the kingdom. So you, if you see that on a map, it, it's a few hundred miles. Like he heads to Beersheba all the way to the other end of the kingdom. And he leaves his servant there. And then he goes further into the wilderness, verse 4, and sat down under a broom tree and asked that he might die. So this is, we read this and we kind of know the end of the story. Like, and we don't pause here. Like we just think he's being melodramatic. But you've got to enter into his story here. Like he is feeling the weight of this, like he, the, the rug has been pulled out from under him where he thought revival was going to happen. Now, a uh, crazy woman is not repentant. In fact, she's coming for his life, and it totally destroys him. And to the point that he says, hey, Lord, take my life. Like, I'm done. It is enough, he says. Now, Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. You hear that? 
you should reread not only did like I highlighted one of the stories of Elijah. You read earlier chapter, like earlier in the chapter, like God did some amazing things, raises a widow's son, like some amazing things through Elijah. Elijah had like God had sent him out to just camp out and live by this brook. He says, Hey, don't worry about food. I'll send the ravens with your lunch. And this is just how he lives. Like, and so this is the kind of life he's used to living with God showing up in mighty ways. And now he's saying, and, and he just had this showdown at, at Mount Carmel, and now he's going, you know what? I'm no good. I'm no better than my father's. I, I, nothing I've done matters. Like, he's just, he's totally in this point of self-loathing, right? We can relate. Like, my, ki- my kids are at this stage right now where they will just, like, one thing will happen, and they'll go, oh, my gosh, worst day ever. Worst day of my life. I'm like, your sister got to the toilet before you? Like, I don't even understand. Like, no, it's a great day. Like, I don't, but it's just this dramatic, I got three girls at home. Y'all just pray for me. Like, I, and it's just beginning. Like, they're not even teenagers yet. I don't, I don't even know um, what I'm in for. But um, the other two guys I know in this church that had three girls are both state policemen. And so I'm wondering if maybe I should have shifted that um, vocation a bit. But, uh, but yeah, just drama, worst day of my life. And so all of a sudden he's just questioning everything. I'm no good. I'm no better than my father's. And he's just at this point of despair. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And l- listen, I know the dude's tired because he just ran or walked a long way. But anybody else tempted to just sleep as an escape? Like, that's me. Like, there's days I, I, I don't get out of bed when I want to because I just don't face the day. Right? Does anybody else... Li- Life just bear on them that bear on you that way, where when you have a, a, a chance to like that, that's what you want to do. You just sleep like that is a default struggle of my own. And listen, I don't I don't come to this as one who can't relate and is just telling you all how to deal with your discouragement. Like this is raw for me, like right now. Like, it, it's, it's just been way too close to home for me in the last few weeks. Stories of friends of mine in other areas of ministry and other areas of the country, like, that have been disqualified from ministry because of sin in their, in their life. And I've had a struggle of, like, man, Lord, is this worth it? Like, is it worth spending my life on this? Like, I don't want to end up there. So I can relate to Elijah here and go, man, Lord, I'm doing your work, but everybody else seems to be falling away. What's going on? So the Lord's had to remind me this week of some of the same truths we're going to see here from Elijah. And I can relate because when that happens to me, man, like, I don't want to get out of bed. And when I get a chance, I want to get back in bed. Like, that, that's a temptation for me. Um, Low-level depression, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not here to, like, speak on depression. I'm not an expert on that. I'm not, and, and depression is very nuanced. There's clinical and, and situational and all of those things. And, and, and so I'm not here to just say, like, hey, it's just this simple and do these three things. Like, but I just want you to know that there, God has space for this in his, in his word and in his plan, like, for us to to struggle and to be honest. I want you to just see how God responds to Elijah here. 
the gentleness, the kindness in which God responds to this guy who's running terrified um, with legitimate fear and with legitimate feelings of my life just needs to end. And God responds in gentleness. And so um, verse 5, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. Listen, this is not the main point of my sermon, so I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but there's just some, like, you need to be aware that we're in a battle, and, and the Bible makes it really clear that, like, Satan is our enemy, and he has messengers, right? That he, that he has uh, a message of uh, deception and discouragement and whispers that are going to come, and so I want you, to, I want you to think about the impact of one messenger. Jezebel sends a messenger, tells um, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. And that has that kind of effect. Like it totally spins him out of control. But I want you to know that we're not left to despair in that. I want you to see how God sends his own messenger. Right? He sends his own messenger to Elijah. He sends an angel and he says, hey, hey, get up, get up and eat. Get up and eat. Now, he doesn't handle everything, right? Like if you're in that moment and you're Elijah, you're not really worried about food, right? Because you're ready to die. You know, really, like you're past the point of hungry, your stomach's no longer growling, like you just resolve to dying. And so you don't really want to, like when you're in that moment and that one thing has got you so far down, you don't really want to hear from anybody unless they have a solution for your problem, right? Unless they can tell you, hey, I fixed this, come on, get up and live life again. You're just going to get angry that they're speaking, right? Anybody else relate to that? Like, don't talk to me. I, I I know you're trying to help, but until this is solved, like, my life still stinks. And, and so I love that God's gentleness is not, hey, like, hey, you know what? I, uh, I let Jezebel run out in front of a chariot, and her deal's done, right? Took care of that for you. Go ahead and go back and live your life. Like, no, he just says, hey, get up and eat, buddy. Get up and eat, son. Arise and eat. And, and there God has prepared for him a meal. He says, get up and eat. And he looked, and there was a... There was a at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. So he goes back to sleep. I can feel this dude, right? We just throw in some Netflix, and this is us today. Like, that's how we roll. Get up, get some food, eat it. Push play. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Listen, I think that's incredible, too, because God didn't even send him on this journey. We'll get to that in a minute. But God didn't even send him on this journey, and yet God just empathizes and says, Hey, I know where you're headed. And you need some food. You need some strength to get there, dude. Like, I think back to those Snickers commercials where somebody's just acting completely out of their mind, and out, like, and they're just not themselves. And it's like, hey, part of what you need here is just like a, you just need some food, right? Pastor Jeremy's talked about people before where their their marriage is struggling all, and they're like, man, we're just fighting all the time, and I don't know what's going on. I just can't stand him, and he, whatever. And he's like, hey, anything? different in your life? Anything happening? Like, well, yeah, we're doing a whole 30 diet together. And he's like, yep, that's it. Like you're hangry, like eat some food and you'll love each other more. Like, and so sometimes we just need to eat, right? Like sometimes it's just, Hey, like when I used to be at Aldi, like one of my assistant managers would go, Hey Jordan, do you need to, do you need a Snickers? And I'm like, all right, fair enough. And so, but you don't know it in that moment. Like you're just entrenched. Like, no, I need you to do your job. You, you know? And she's like, yeah, I'll do that, but maybe you should take a break. But anyway, so God's just kind to him and gives him a meal and says, I know where you're headed. You're going to need some fuel to get there. And so um, it's, it's some kind of superfood. Probably came from Whole Foods, super organic. I don't know. But whatever it was, 
gets him through 40 days and 40 nights of travel. So it's good stuff. Uh, would market well in today's culture. Um, I could see like a direct, um, direct ship business, whatever those things are. Like direct sales. I could see one of those starting. You get that kind of food, man. People are going to love that. Like you don't eat once, you're good for 40 days. Like that's weight loss, energy, all of those things. Advocare is going to be all over that. Like, or what this stuff is. 40 days, 40 nights. It's all good. All right, I got to keep going. Verse 9. So then he goes 40 days, 40 nights into this deal, and he comes to a cave, and he sets up shop. He lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And here's our question from the Questioning God series. And God says to Elijah simply, hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, listen, this is not God being surprised. Like us, somebody shows up at our house, and we're like, oh, what? Did we have an appointment? Like, I'm... I got Netflix on, or I'm in my pajamas with ice cream. Like, I, I didn't know you were coming. Like, I'm surprised. This is not God being surprised. This is God. Like, again, when God asks questions, it's not because he has a lack of knowledge. Like, he's drawing something out in us, right? So he, he asks Elijah, hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Elijah starts with a spiel. And you know when you're in that moment, like, you have your spiel ready, right? Like, you know why your life stinks. You just wish the rest of the world could see it. Right? So somebody asks, and you're, you're ready. Like, this, this is why. So he's got a spill. He says, listen, I've been very jealous, verse 10, for the Lord, the God of hosts. For you, God. I've been jealous for you. The people of Israel, they've all forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even, on, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. All right, so we're going to look at three, three things real quick. Three things that, that lead, that led Elijah to his despair, and then we're going to see how God responds with three things. And the, and the first thing that leads Elijah to his despair is believing that he was alone. You hear that? He goes, everybody else, they've all thrown down your altars, and I'm the only, they've, they've killed the other prophets, and I'm the only one left that even cares about you, God. So why should I keep going? But is that true? Because what we know from the previous text is that if you start out early in verse 18, we, we see that there's this guy named Obadiah that actually loves God but works for the king. And whenever Je- Jezebel went crazy and started killing everybody, he snuck some people out and went and hid them. He, he snuck some prophets out, a hundred of them, and hid them in caves. And so Elijah knows that. He's been told that directly. And in fact, when Obadiah says it, he kind of says it like Elijah should already know that. He says, hey, have you not been told? Has it not been told to you that, that I did this? And so there's, there seems to be this posture of like, Elijah knows some of this truth, but he's believing something totally different. You ever experienced that with your spouse? And you're like, man, you are just believing something that is not true. We see that with people with anorexia or bulimia, like where they can look in a mirror and see a fat person whenever really like everybody else can count their ribs. Like there's this distortion of reality. And so we see that Elijah has embraced this reality. I'm alone. I'm the only one that cares. When in, the truth is, like, no, that, that's, that's not the case. But what, you will be led to despair if you start believing this narrative that you are alone. And sometimes we really are alone. And, and, and here's the deal. Like, uh, that can be confusing. Because when you're by yourself, you're kind of in a league of your own, and, and things are going well, then that's intoxicating, isn't it? Because it's, it's me. Like, I'm doing this deal. Especially in leadership. Like, when things are going well and, and nobody else is really at our peer level holding us accountable, like, that's intoxicating. But when the bottom falls out or when the quiet settles down, you hear this from celebrities a lot, 
that isolation becomes soul-crushing. What we see from Elijah is he's lived this life of miracle after miracle and God really doing mighty things through his ministry, and now all of a sudden God's voice isn't there, and he mistakes it for God's absence. And he goes, man, I'm not, like, what does this even matter? I'm all alone. So believing that he was all alone is part of what leads him to despair. And then uh, the next thing we see is that um, he says, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill my life, or they're trying to kill me too. And so the second thing we see he believes is that it all depended upon him. Right? Like it, it all, we see that in the text where he's just like, it's all like, I'm the only one left. I did this thing, and now it still didn't even work, and my life just needs to end. How many of you carry that pressure? Carry that pressure of, man, it is, it is on me, and if I crumble under this weight, then my family will suffer, my church will suffer, my job will suffer. Like, nobody can run my business if I can't be there 60, 70 hours a week. Nobody can do what I do for my kids if I go and, and take a breather or take a nap. Like, and we carry this weight of this pressure of, like, there's this twisted what turns into a lie where, where a lot of people live by this motto. And it sounds good. It sounds wise, this whole thing of, like, if it's going to be, it's up to me. That, again, that sounds wise, and that can be helpful to kind of get a lazy or an entitled person, get them to work, right? But it can become soul-crushing when you take that too far, and you just embrace that as your identity. And, and man, I, I can't let it go. I can't stop for a minute. And that's what leads to so many addictions. That's what leads to so much workaholism. And, and it, it can be, it drives you further into isolation. When you believe that it's all up to you, when it depends upon you, and you're headed to discouragement, you're headed toward depression, And then the third thing we see is, as we kind of get through the, the, the rest of the text here, is that um, Elijah ultimately has placed his own expectations on how God is to handle this deal. Right? He's placed his own expectations on God's plan. So he's been obedient. He's doing what God says to do, but he has his own outcome in mind of what it's going to look like. And we're going to see later that God's going to correct that. And so we're setting ourselves up for failure if we start putting our own projections on what God should do rather than seeking his face and trusting in faith that he has a plan that's far bigger than what we can see. And so we're going to we're kind of expedite this and, and look at then what did the Lord teach him? So we see this, this famous story of God says, hey, okay, I hear you, Elijah. Now come, come stand at the edge of the cave. And we see that, that um, in verse 11, it says, Go out and stand in the mount before the Lord. And, and the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. This is, a, this is a familiar story to many of us. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. But after the earthquake, a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He asked the same question, I think hoping that his demonstration has, has going to lead Elijah to a different answer. But we see that Elijah is cocked and loaded with the same spiel. Even after that demonstration of power, like Elijah says the same thing over again. I've been very jealous for the Lord, my God, and everybody else has torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. It's the same spiel over and over again. We get the sense that Elijah doesn't want to hear the truth. Elijah doesn't want to see what God is trying to teach him, right? That's not easy to see in your own life. For those of you who have kids, like you can relate to that. 
Like, they want to stay there in that moment of fit-throwing and anger. They don't want to see the solution because they're still angry and hurt, and, and they, they've really made a nice little place for them in their own, like, pity party and in their own narrative of, of life is all uh, about me, and it should be over, and blah, 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 and they just resist hearing that truth. And so what we see is Elijah is not getting the lesson that God is trying to draw out from him. But there's something insightful in this this instance, what we see that God teaches him. First of all, in, in the, God's not in the earthquake, God's not in the wind, God's not in the fire, then he's in the what? The still small voice, the, the soft whisper. You think about Elijah's life. Everything's been dramatic. Everything's been a big deal from God. God spoke, told him to go here. He goes and does it. Ravens bring him lunch. Uh, the, like, widow's son gets raised from the dead. Like, everything's been ministry highlight reels for this guy up to this point. And then he gets one threat. God's voice is not there. He mistakes it for God's absence, and he is out and throwing his hands up. What God is showing him is, hey, listen, I don't only work in the big, majestic, powerful, noteworthy ways. I'm not, a, like, I'm not always going to do the highlight reel miracle stuff. You need, to, you need to learn to find me in the quietness of your life, Elijah. You need to learn to find me when, when everything else is kind of shut down and it's just, man, how many of you, like, our world, we don't know how to just be with our own thoughts. We don't know how to be before God anymore, right? Like, seriously, like, we can't even wait in line or go to the restroom without pulling out our phones and going to social media, checking our email, checking our text, whatever. Like, we don't know how to just be still. And what God's inviting Elijah to is like, you need to just sit in this for a minute. You need to know that I'm here in the quietness. There may not be miracles going on. There may not be chaos. But, like, I'm still here. So he's inviting him to, to understand that, that no big event doesn't mean that God is gone. And the second thing he's going to show him is that it didn't depend on him. In fact, he's going to use others. Right? That's a tough lesson to learn. But he's like, hey, Elijah, you're getting a little too big for your britches, buddy. Like, I still have a plan, and just because it didn't work out the way you wanted to, doesn't rise and fall on you, Elijah. In fact, what you need to do is get back to work. He tells him, hey, go return on your way, verse 15. Return on your way to the wilderness into Damascus. When you arrive, you're going to anoint this guy, and then, he's, and then you're going to anoint that guy, and then call Elisha to take your place, and that's how I'm going to take care of the Baal worship. So he's saying, listen, yeah, the Mount Carmel thing, that was cool. It's a big deal, but actually I'm just going to fix the whole idolatry issue in in Israel, I'm just going to fix it by some really ordinary means, really ordinary things. Go ahead and and just go ahead and facilitate the next political and religious leadership change. And through that, I'll eventually, I'll take care of this deal. It's not flashy. It's not ESPN top 10, but Lord's like, hey, this is how, in in fact, it's not, you're not even going to be the one to do it, Elijah. So he kind of invites him, like he's kind of telling him, get over yourself. Like it doesn't all depend on you. You can rest because I got this and it's going to play out this way. So it's not your expectations, not the way you thought it was going to be, but but, but I have a plan. And then the last thing he's going to show him is like, hey man, you were never alone. You were never alone. He tells him how it's all going to go down in verse 17. Um, but he says, hey, I'll, but I'm going to leave. I'm not going to restore, but they're, they're there. You should know this, Elijah, but they're there. I'm going to leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. I'm going to leave all them. So God's saying, listen, you're not all by yourself, buddy. You need to shut that narrative down. Like, stop telling everybody that story. 
that you're the only one left. It's not true. I got this, Elijah. I've got a plan. You've allowed your own personal narrative to override the work that I'm doing through you. Just because God uses us doesn't mean God depends upon us or he relies upon us. Like The reason we're able to go to sleep and rest well at night because God doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He never gets off his throne. He doesn't need us defending him. He just chooses to use us. He's reminding Elijah of this. So how do we respond to this? How how does this meet us in our struggle? And here's just a few things that I want to invite you to. Don't don't stay in your hiding. Don't stay in your silence. Like what keeps you, like here's the deal. Like it, it, God didn't tell him to leave and go to Beersheba and then on into, uh, back to, really it was Mount Sinai. He's like, hey, I know God spoke here once. I'm going to go back there. God didn't tell him to do those things. Uh, every other point in Elijah's life, God had spoke, told him to do this, and he would go do it. He, he didn't tell him to do those things. And so whenever discouragement hits, Elijah makes his own plan and runs and retreats. And he's all alone in this big woe is me narrative. Where, he, where could he have gone? Where could Elijah have gone? Do you think he would have found warm embrace in the caves where those other hundred prophets are? Obadiah tells him, hey, I got, I got two caves. There's 50 prophets in each. I put them there. I got them food and water, hiding them from crazy Jezebel. Like, he could have went there, right? He could have ran to a brother and said, I'm struggling. I, I'm discouraged, I'm depressed, I'm thinking about quitting. Why doesn't he? Better question is, why don't you? Why don't you speak up? What keeps you from telling your best friends that you struggle to get out of bed? Or that you struggle to not drink alcohol every day, or that you have toyed with the idea of taking your own life? What keeps you from running toward community? God has ordained the church as the place where we find a healing and hope. God never says, if it's going to be, it's up to you. Never says that. In fact, he says, I got you. And the way that I want you to find hope and healing is to confess to your brothers, your sisters. Confess your sins so that you may be healed. So as we move into a new season of community groups here at the, at the journey, it is my burden and my heart. Our community group leader is going to be meeting next week to talk about, like, how do we move beyond just a tagline of, like, we're in community and we do this instead of Sunday school because it's, you know, it, it's more living life together. What, like, how do we actually get into each other's lives so that we're able to speak up before the house is on fire? Like, I'm just tired of story after story of story of of people's lives falling apart and then finding out that they've struggled for the last five years right under our noses, right right in relationship, right in community group with each other. Like, I can't keep doing that. So how do, we, how do we back this thing up? And we go, okay, how do we get comfortable with one another and get in each other's lives four or five steps earlier? So we're able to speak up when we, we stop having sex with our spouse. We're able to speak up whenever we start 
having a drink every night. We're able to speak up whenever we start not believing the gospel. We're able to speak up whenever we start to hate our life. How do we do that? And it doesn't happen when we hide and we protect and we keep that all to ourselves. So if you're not in community, I encourage you, find myself, find like one of the other leaders with a name tag. There's a whole board back there. Like you can, there's contact information on each of those brochures. Like we would love to plug you in and then just know that we're going to try to commit as a church to find new rhythms and new ways to actually back that up so that we're able to get into each other's lives sooner and, and deeper. And that's on me as much as anybody. Like, that, like I've lived in casual community and not being really known for, for years. I told you all before, like I, this year I had, to ra- I had to go, hey, I need you and you to get in my life. Like I need you to know my stuff because I'm alone. So it starts with like I'm trying to lead by example, lead in humility, and just be there with you. But we've got to get there, church. Like we have to figure out how to be known and to speak up and and to step out of our silence and our hiding. We have a God who embraces us and has ordained a church that is supposed to be a safe place to find hope and healing whenever we're feeling those types of feelings. And I want you to ask on the other side of this, what keeps you from engaging with somebody that you sense or know is struggling? How many lies do we believe? Oh, Oh, that's just that. Or, oh, that's you know, they've got this or they're okay. Like you see signs of something, you see signs of struggling and you don't lean in because you're afraid to offend or you're afraid of this or you give them too. Like stop giving them so much credit. Like the Bible says, we're to watch over one another to keep our hearts from being hardened so that we don't fall into sin. So ask hard questions. Love each other in that way. Don't give them so much credit. Don't give me so much credit. I'm not Superman. Pray for your pastor. Pray for other pastors. Being used by God is really depleting. It's really hard. So don't assume anything of of each other. Don't assume anything of me. Ask hard questions. Love each other well. Not condemning, not coming after, like, out of love. Hey, are you okay? buy you dinner I appreciate you whatever it is like just hey you can talk to me like it's gonna probably take more than one conversation for us to trust one another right so no it's like well I checked in with old boy and like he said he was good and like well no maybe you got to do it a few more times so we know like we have to cultivate that kind of community but what keeps you from engaging when you know somebody is struggling in that way here's the deal here's how it all ends God invites Elijah to lift his head and say, hey, buddy, I got this. Go back to work. And here's the, here's the invitation from God. I got to, like, for us, he invites us to lift our head and to, to look to the cross and to see that it doesn't depend on you, to see that you're not alone. In fact, Jesus left his throne and entered into our mess so that you would not be alone, to make a way for you to be in relationship with him. And he says, I'll never leave you or never forsake you. Jesus himself went into the isolation, went into the rejection that we feel and we struggle with, that Elijah feels and struggles, and he embraced it. He didn't run from death. He ran toward death, and he threw himself 
under God's wrath and pushed us out of the way so that we could have life. And he died the death that we should have died so that we can have life and hope and encouragement on this side of the deal. And he never says it's going to be easy, but he says, listen, I love you and I will hold you fast. And one day, however it ends, you will be with me and I'll wipe every tear from your eye and I'll make all things new. And we have hope because of that. That's the gospel message. That's what this meal proclaims and screams that we come to every week. Jesus says, it is finished right here. Doesn't depend on you. Come, feast on this, let your soul be nourished, and confess to one another, enjoy the gospel, and find hope and healing. Come out of your hiding. What are you doing here? What are you hiding for? What are you doing here? God asks each one of us, What are you doing here if you're not going to come to the gospel? What are you doing here if you're not going to reach out for help? Let's pray. God, give us courage to respond. Move us beyond motions of this is what we do at the end of service and move us into faith and a response in you. We need you. We ask it in Jesus' strong name.